the title of my book, it sounds like a trendy diet, right? The endurance diet. Um, you know, I, I sort of came up with that title with, with a wink because it's really just a collection of habits. It's not something I came up with. It's just something that evolved naturally in, in, in the real world. That Triathlon Show, 153. Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, I'm back with Matt Fitzgerald, but this time to talk about his book, The Endurance Diet, and uh, not just the book, of course, but the actual concept behind this nutritional approach. It's not really a diet, but actually a set of uh, five core habits or principles that elite endurance athletes all over the world seem to follow. It's a bit like how, you know, with the 80-20 training distribution that we talked about in uh, last episode, it arose from investigating how elite endurance athletes really train and how they distribute their intensity. And uh, the endurance diet, it's the same sort of research. Matt did a lot of investigations, both formal and informal, to discover the habits, nutritional approaches of the top endurance athletes of the world across disciplines, across continents. And he put together all of the findings in this book called The Endurance Diet. And the great thing is that... uh, us amateurs can use this very safe approach and should use this very safe approach if we want to optimize our endurance performance. And uh, this, the Endurance Diet, this book, I read it a couple of years ago, I think, and this has been what I base my my nutritional approach on ever since, really. And it works just brilliantly. I'm super happy about it. And it's uh, of all the books that I read and all the things that uh, you consume about nutrition in the endurance uh, in the endurance world, it really is, in my opinion, the best. Uh, I, I think it's just absolutely brilliant. So definitely listen to this interview, then get on Amazon. I, I'll link to it in the show notes and get this book. Uh, just like you should get uh, the 8020 uh, triathlon book, by the way. I think I didn't mention that in uh, the last episode that I actually do recommend uh, getting that as well. So get on Amazon and go on a Matt Fitzgerald shopping spree while you're there. Before we dive into the interview, of course, as usual, let's thank our sponsors. First, we have Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com. You know by now that the amount of sweat that uh, individuals lose is very, very variable. But this is not the only thing that causes us to need to have individual hydration strategies. Within that sweat that we lose, some individuals lose a lot of sodium. A large concentration of their uh, their sodium concentration in their sweat is large, whereas some have much more, uh, much smaller concentrations of sodium. And typically, normal sports drinks, although they do have sodium in them, but they are made for a minimal amount of sodium concentration in the, in the sweat. And actually, very few individuals are at that low sweat sodium concentration levels. So we need electrolytes and it has been common wisdom for a long time in endurance sports that on long in long and hot racing in particular people know that they should take some salt but they just take some salt tablets at random without really considering how much how many and why precision hydration makes it easy for you to tailor your hydration and your electrolyte strategy to your individual needs you can take their free online sweat test on precisionhydration.com and it's linked to in the episode description and you'll get a very good estimate for how much sodium you need to consume in your hydration to make sure that hydration and uh, the detrimental effects that lack of hydration and and inadequate uh, electrolytes can have on endurance performance don't happen to you. And uh, yeah, cramping is one of those detrimental effects. So uh, go and take that sweat test, and if you want to get your first box for free, then use the promo code that show all one word, all caps, on precisionhydration.com. And big thank you to Stack, the award-winning company that produces the Stack Zero bike power meters that have zero noise, zero wear and tear on the tire. 
check out all of their models, including the Stack Zero Base, the Stack Zero Power Meter, and the Stack Zero Halcyon Smart Trainer on their website stackzero.com and use the promo code TTS20 to get 20% off your own stack bike trainer. I'm on a stack zero power meter as of this moment, but not at this moment. I'm actually recording in this moment, but that's my current uh, bike trainer. But uh, I have ordered and I'm waiting for the stack zero halcyon. So I'm, I'll be very eager to test that out. And as you'll hear in a future episode as well, uh, I will review, not review necessarily, I will talk with representatives from different software companies that make bike training software software like Trainer Road, Swift, Sufferfest, etc. And uh, the Smart Trainer will allow me to test some of these softwares uh, and utilize all of their functionalities. So I'm very much looking forward to that as well. But again, the URL is stackzero.com. That's S-T-A-C, zero spelled out, dot com. And the promo code is TTS20 to get 20% off any of their models. All right, so with that said, let's get right into the interview with Matt Fitzgerald on the endurance diet. And we're back for another interview with uh, Matt Fitzgerald, and uh, this one will be on the endurance diet, which is the name of uh, perhaps my favorite book of all the books that you've written that I read. I haven't read all of them, but a lot of them. Uh, So uh, Matt, first, welcome back. Great to be back. Let's uh, dive into the endurance diet and uh, uncover what that really is. First, how did you go about researching and uh, quote-unquote finding this endurance diet? Yeah, so, um, you know, I guess, you know, I've been paying attention to how elite endurance athletes eat since the 1990s. I I remember writing an article for uh, a magazine called Multisport. It was really a, a triathlon magazine about everything. It, it was it was actually just a long caption to a photograph. It was a photograph of everything that the uh, then dominant uh, professional triathlete Mike Pig ate in a day. And it was just, it was an astounding amount of food. It was just all laid out on a table. Um, and I didn't know, I was, you know, fresh out of college then. I didn't know the first thing about really nutrition, but that's when I started being exposed to how uh, top professional a- athletes uh, eat um, and, you know, eventually I became a certified sports nutritionist. Um, and, you know, as an athlete myself, I started to pay more attention to how I ate and I've always tended to model my, both how I eat as an athlete and how I recommend other athletes eat, um, you know, model that on, uh, you know, common patterns that I see among, uh, elite endurance athletes, you know, they don't all eat exactly the same, but there are some consistent patterns, um, which I, you know, consider best practices. So, uh, the idea behind this book, um, was to do some more formal or rigorous research into the, you know, the habits that define, uh, you know, the, the professional or elite way of eating for endurance performance. Um, so I got to travel all over the world (laughs) to eat with, you know, professional cross-country skiers, triathletes, runners, cyclists, um, but also I also created a, cause I couldn't travel everywhere. So I also created a survey that I would email to athletes and other places that I wasn't able to visit. And I, you know, I gathered quite a, quite amount, uh, quite a large amount of data and, uh, that's, uh, put it between the covers of this book. And, uh, the, the final out- outcome of that was, uh, five core habits, uh, that you break down in individual chapters and, uh, those are eat everything, eat quality, eat carb-centered, eat enough, and eat individually. So if we start with eat everything, well, what does that mean? Yeah, you know, there are a lot of popular diets out there that are based on uh, forbidding certain food types. Uh, so, you know, there's the, as, as Americans pronounce it, paleo diet. You know, we are not allowed to eat uh, grains and dairy um, uh, there, you know, there are v- vegetarian vegan diets where you can't eat animal foods. Uh, there's a no grain, no sugar diet out there. What I've found is that, uh, elite endurance athletes, they eat everything. <laughs> there, there are no food types that they avoid. In fact, they tend to go out of their way to make sure they're including all of, you know, the natural, uh, 
food types in their diet and they'll come up with um, some crazy concoctions, uh, you know, combining, you know, foods that you would never think to put together <laughs> just to make sure that they're not missing out on everything. And I think it helps them perform better because, you know, each food type is nutritionally distinct. And so if you have a well-rounded diet that includes some of everything, uh, your, your health and fitness are less likely to be compromised by any gaps in nutrition. And you mentioned there the word uh, natural. So eat everything. Does that mean that it, it's still, I guess, actually, we're coming to that in the next point. So the next point and core habit is eat quality. So if you go into that and explain that uh, as well. Yes. So, you know, eat everything doesn't mean eat equal amounts of everything. So, um Yes, every, everything does encompass, you know, sweets, alcohol. Um, I, I haven't encountered um, any professional endurance athletes who forbid themselves, you know, you know like, un, quote unquote, unhealthy foods. In fact, it tends to be unhealthy to try to eliminate things like sweets um, because, you know, they're enjoyable and you're a human being. So as long as you're not eating too much, Uh, of that stuff or drinking too much alcohol, it actually, I think it, you know, most people find that they're just happier with a healthy diet. If it's not all healthy, um, nevertheless, you know, the, the second habit is, as you said, eat quality, which means that most of what you're eating should be, uh, high quality or, you know, natural unprocessed food types. That's all quality really means that, that term, you know, I, I, I'm a big proponent of it because, Uh, nutritional scientists use it a lot, this concept of quality, whereas in the mainstream discourse, it's all about carbs, fats, and protein, and, and they sort of ignore issues of quality, which doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, and, and you have a great system, which is the diet quality score. Can you uh, explain that a bit? Because I think that's just brilliant. I, th I think it's uh, it's probably the most, the, the, best, the best way I've seen of uh, tracking your uh, diet your nutrition and it's not about counting calories or anything it's just about tracking quality so so explain that right so you know when uh when scientists do work in the field of nutritional epidemiology which basically means they look for cause and effect patterns between how people eat the foods they eat and health outcomes like you know cancer risk or diabetes risk they'll, they'll do that in large populations to answer questions such as Do people who eat more fruit tend to have lower rates of cancer, things like that? So to do that type of work, they need, these scientists need ways of scoring diet quality. Um, and so through, you know, just a lot of uh, research of this type, scientists have tend to, tended to identify or been able to identify food types that are generally associated with positive health outcomes, you know, and they're the obvious ones. Um, basically, you know, every every natural food type is good for you in a certain amount. So up and down the line from fruits and vegetables to nuts, um, to fish, uh, to, um, you know, even dairy, not all, all, not all types of dairy, but things like yogurt and, and milk and cheese. Um, whereas, you know, things like sweets, uh, excessive alcohol, fried foods, uh, refined grains tend to be associated with negative health outcomes. So these, these scoring tools for diet quality already exist, but they're a little complex for everyday athletes to be able to use. So I just, I, I just created my own, the diet quality score that is more user-friendly. So it's just intended to be uh, a very simple way of putting a number on the overall quality of your diet. So, you know, there are tables in the book that, you know, show you how many points, you know, your second serving of fruit in a day gets, um, or, you know, that type of thing. I also have a smartphone app that, that makes it very easy. So it's, it's, you know, it takes a little bit of effort because you're just, you're, you're, but that's the point is that you're paying attention to what you eat a little bit more than you would otherwise. We all tend to look through at, at our diet through rose colored glasses, as they say, where you think your diet is better than it actually is. And when you use this tool, you're, you're forced to see the reality of how you're eating. And then it makes it easier to kind of systematically improve the quality of your diet. So, so if we run through the the food groups, the high quality and the lower quality food groups, uh, yeah, I think you have ten groups. Uh, is that correct? What what are those groups from the best highest quality to the lowest quality? Yeah. So number one is vegetables. Um, 
And you know, I won't belabor. I don't. Who's going to argue with that anyway? <laughs> Number two is fruit. Uh, you know, fruit and, and vegetables. Some, some, are... some people will argue with fruit. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but too bad. I mean, this is you know, I didn't, I didn't come up. I'm not like I said. I'm not a scientist. I just you know, this you know, you have to read the book. There's there's a rationale for my ranking. That's all I can say, and it is scientific. So vegetables followed by fruit, followed by a, a category that I, I I label nuts, seeds, and healthy oils. Um, followed by dairy, um, followed by, um, uh, oh, did I skip one? I think I might've skipped, uh, whole, skip whole, grain, whole grains, I think. Yes. Whole grains is ahead of dairy. Um, I've actually got the book in front of me now and then unprocessed meat and seafood. Um, and those are the high quality food types. The low quality food types are refined grains, sweets, uh, and processed meat and fried foods so that's 10 perfect and and the app is called what is it called for people that want to download that dqs for diet quality score there's uh you know a version for iphone and a version for droids got it yeah and and the book really goes into detail on those groups so i highly recommend everybody go and get that book and it's a it's an easy read but a great read and, and very scientifically sound uh, so the next habit then eat carb centered which uh, these days it's uh, uh, a bit controversial almost <laughs> but uh, explain that yeah yeah so you know all i did was observe and you know i'm uh, I, I mentioned this in our uh, earlier interview on 80 20 triathlon triathlon which is that i'm a pragmatist you know i I, all I care is about is what works. Um, you know, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't come at, you know, training from an ideological perspective or nutrition. And, and all I can say is what I have observed is that very nearly all elite endurance athletes uh, across disciplines and on all inhabited co- continents eats a carbohydrate centered diet. That doesn't mean it's, you know, high carb all the time, but it means that, uh, high quality, high carbohydrate foods are included in most meals and snacks uh, among this cohort, and uh, you know so that is why it's one of the, the five habits. Just because I, it, it was a, a clear pattern that I observed everywhere I went. And, and what kinds of carbs are the elite athletes eating? Because I think a common mistake and, and assumption that people make is that they think that if you eat a high carb diet then you eat tons of white pasta and bread and uh, kellogg's frosties and that sort of thing but uh, that's not really the case is it right yeah there's a lot of um because you know low carbohydrate diets are are very popular these days both in you know in the general population and among endurance athletes and you'll see athletes go from uh you know sort of an anything goes diet where they're not even really thinking about <laughs> what they eat except for that it tastes good and then they'll go on a low carb diet and they'll lose weight and maybe have a good race and they'll see they'll say see carbs are bad um but you know they <laughs> you know what they've done is they've thrown the baby out with the, with the bath water that what i would suggest they do instead is instead of getting rid of all the carbs just get rid of the ones that elite athletes don't eat which is uh, you know the the ref- mostly the refined grains and the, the sweets, but retain uh, the starchy vegetables, the whole grains, the fruit, you know, even dairy, um, uh, because then you have the best of both worlds. You get the you get the benefits of carbohydrate uh, without the the drawbacks of uh, low quality food types, which just happen to be high in carbohydrate. Mm. Then the next habit is uh, eat enough. Uh, so go into that a little bit. Yeah, so obviously it doesn't. Uh, it's not only what you eat that matters, but how much. Um, and you, you know, as an endurance athlete, you want to k- kind of thread the needle. You don't want to eat too little, and you don't want to eat uh, too much. Um, and and what I've found is that uh, you know, elite endurance athletes they do very very little uh, calorie counting. Um, they uh, because what happens is if, if you if you eat a diet that's based on high quality food types, those foods tend to be more satiating than low quality foods. So simply by shifting from a lower quality diet to a higher quality diet, you'll probably eat fewer calories 
uh, without counting calories, uh, just by uh, listening to your appetite or, you know, kind of heating your appetite, uh, because you'll just get fuller uh, on, on fewer calories. Um, but, you know, a, a certain amount of, so just what I found is that um, just in, in, in general, elite athletes, one of the ways they tend to be a little different from the rest of us is that they're very tuned into their bodies. And that goes for being able to listen to their bodies in terms of their, um, their appetite and satiety as well. Um, so we can all do that because every human infant is good at stopping a meal <laughs> uh, when they've had enough to eat. But we're sort of trained, especially in, in societies like uh, mine in the United States, to, to sort of ignore those signals. Uh, low quality food you know, doesn't help, but also just being bombarded with uh, you know, billboards and television advertisements and just, you know, just access too easy ac access to uh, cheap and unhealthy food. It just makes us you just eat even when we're not hungry. Um, but the, the best way to thread that needle, um, you know, to eat not too little, not too much, but the right amount is to uh, sort of eat intuitively, eat by feel and just build habits around uh you know, eating enough because, you know, most of us, we don't eat radically differently every day. So once you've sort of figured out how much is enough, you're doing more or less the same things every day. And then it becomes just, you know, it just, it's just what you do. Um, and, and people who uh, are calorie counters, they, they tend to eat too little, which is very detrimental if you're an endurance athlete. Um, and then, the, uh, you know, as a consequence of eating too little, they eventually kind of snap and then binge and eat too much. So, you know, there's you might think you need to count calories to eat the right amount of food but if you just look at the real world the people who do the best job of it are the ones who don't count calories yeah yeah uh, i think that the point about uh calorie counting and eating too little like especially among the very serious age groupers i think some discussions that i had i think there's even some so far unpublished research but that will be published from uh, from the ironman world championships in kona from last year uh, about how something like 80% of the age groupers that were in the in the sample uh, that was researched they were in energy deficit which is a very serious condition it's not just that they're in a caloric deficit but uh, actually uh, a severe no I'm looking for another term not energy deficit but um, do can you help me Matt do you know the term that I'm can looking for what's that catabolism catabolic uh, state no it's um um, uh, energy availability, low energy availability, uh, right, state of, right. of low energy availability. So, so that me, it depends, of course, on the size of the athlete. But usually, it's, right, it's uh, it's quite a serious. Like you, you just don't get the nutrients needed. So, so I think, especially at least from uh, what I see in in athletes around me that I coach and uh, and talk with and communicate with, the more serious the the athlete gets, the more dangerous this uh it it becomes and and the bigger the risk that an athlete actually starts uh kind of eating too little is that something that you see as well as a nutritionist yes and you know a point that i underscore a lot because it's sort of counterintuitive you know again in societies like mine we're used to the idea that people tend to eat too much so we don't um we don't give enough thought to what it means to eat too little but as an endurance athlete, it's actually more harmful to eat too little um, because if you eat too much as an endurance athlete, you, you, you will tend to train pretty well because you have enough energy. <laughs> Your energy comes from food calories. You'll tend to recover well because that takes you know, raw materials that you get from food. The biggest downside of eating too much, and I'm not talking about you know, radically too much. I'm just talking about a little too much. Um, you know, you'll be above your optimal racing weight when you get to the start line, which is not good, but you'll at least get to the start line. Whereas if you, you routinely eat not enough, you probably won't even make it to the start line. You're, you know, you'll be underfueled for workouts. So you'll, you, you won't feel good and you won't perform well in workouts. You won't recover as well because you, your body doesn't have the raw materials. You'll be more likely to get ill, more likely to develop, uh, overtraining symptoms, uh, more likely to get injured. Um, so, um, it, 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 you really want to avoid, uh, making that error. And yes, it, it is very common to make that error because, you know, endurance athlete, I mean, it's an undeniable fact, fact that body weight and body composition are performance factors, you know, so it does matter. 
but you want to be very smart uh, about how you go about regulating your food intake for the purpose of performance weight management. Yeah, yeah, it's that old adage of uh, better to be at the start line overweight and undertrained than uh, overtrained and underweight. Yes. So finally, we have uh, the fifth habit, which is eat individually. Right. Um, so the you know the first four habits that we that we discussed are kind of universals. They they establish um, you know a framework or a space that you want to operate inside of with your diet as an endurance athlete. But we're not all the same. Uh, you know culturally, uh, in terms of you know our personal history, our preferences. Uh, our values. So there's plenty of room, you know, within the, the parameters established by those first four habits, there's plenty of room to eat in different ways. Um, and I encourage, you know, what I saw, it, the example I give in the book was, um, I spent a, a, a few days in Spain with a, the Lato Yumbo professional cycling team from the Netherlands. And it was, I think, 16 cyclists there, um, you know, all eating their meals together. And, you know, I would eat with them. And uh, I remember noticing when I looked around at the table that no two plates had exactly the same food choices on them. So they, they all had the same options, but they all chose slightly different combinations. And when I asked, went around the table asking athletes, you know, why are you eating this and not that? Uh, they all had reasons for it. And some of it, sometimes it was just, I don't like that. <laughs> uh, but other times it was, you know, that doesn't agree with me when I eat it or, or what have you. Um, and, and so what, what some of the, you know, the popular diets do is that they're one size fits all. It's like, this is how you eat if you're on the diet and who cares what you like or don't like, or what you grew up eating or what culture you're from. And I think that's a bunch of hogwash. I, I, I think that you should actually change your diet as little as necessary uh, in order to get the results you want. Because presumably you eat the way you do for a reason. You like it. You're used to it. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, you, yes, you need to improve it to get better results. Um, but, you know, it's okay to, you know, stick to your preferences. You, you'll just, you'll be, you'll, it's all about building habits. And you'll be more likely to stick to whatever habits you come up with. Um, if it just feels easy, you know, because it, it's, it, you know, it's, it's an enjoyable, it's culturally relevant, uh, uh, et cetera. Mm. So, so then uh, another question that I wanted to ask is, uh, a bit the same as with the, uh, 80, 20 training, uh, how do we know, or what's the reasoning for why eating like the elites also applies to non-elite age group athletes? Because we're all human is is the short answer. You know, I, I run into this all the time. People, it's really based on just a, a poor understanding of, of genetics. Um, people almost seem to think, not everyone, but some people seem to think that elite endurance athletes are like a different species. <laughs> but they're not. And, you know, you know, genetic research has found that it's a very small number of genes that tend to make the elites different from the rest of us. And also it's worth pointing out that as a, a cohort, elite athletes are as genetically different from each other as recreational athletes are different from each other. You know, it's just, it's this, it's, um, it's a mess. So basically we're all human. And uh, so, you know, and the genes that do sort of are required, so the one the kind of must have genes for, uh, elite performance, they have nothing to do with how food is digested and, and metabolized. So, um, so that's the genetic side. There's also the training volume side. So people might say, well, you know, uh, you know, a triathlete who's, you know, training 30 hours per week, I trained five hours per week. So, um, but you know, that's just a matter of scale. The same thing applies on training. You know, we've discussed, uh, in a previous interview, the 80, 20 principle of intensity, uh, balance, so that applies whether you're a, a low volume recreational athlete or a high volume professional athlete. So training like the pros doesn't mean also doing 30 hours a week. You know, your body just might not be able to handle that. But so you still emulate their patterns, but with proper scaling, you do the same thing with diet. You know, because you are also human, uh, you you can, you know, the best way or the way that is the way the elites eat is also optimal for you, but with proper scaling, you don't need their 5,000 calories a day because you're not training 30 hours per week. 
Yeah, that's a good answer. Uh, and uh, then there are some other parts in the later chapters in the book beyond the core habits that uh, are quite interesting and uh, that I think we can discuss a little bit. And the first one is nutrition periodization. Yeah, so you know, I think most athletes are familiar with the concept of periodization in training where uh, you you excuse me, you break the training process into phases where you're not always emphasizing the t- same types of workouts and um, with you can do the same thing with nutrition. You know, I'm, I don't like to see athletes overthink diet too much because, you know, there are those who do. Um, and it usually, you know, it's, it's stressful and, uh, doesn't really get you where you want to go. But, you know, once you've sort of done, once you've started to practice these five habits and are reaping the benefits of doing so, uh, you know, there, there's still things you can do refinements you can make to your diet to get even better results. And one of them is, you know, ch- you know, making changes in, in, you know, what and how you eat based on uh, where you are in, in the training cycle. So, um, or even, you know, whether it's a, a if it's a rest day versus a, a heavy training day. So, you know, for example, if you're coming off uh, an off season uh, break, so you've you've rested a little bit, your training volume has gone way down. Uh, you've gained a little bit of weight, uh, you know, which is perfectly appropriate at that time. As you look to go into the next training cycle, you might want to do sort of a, a short weight loss focus phase. And the best way to eat for for uh, you know fast weight loss is not the same as the as the endurance diet. It's not the same as the best way to eat for building fitness. So you might just set aside a few weeks to eat in a way that helps you shed those you know two or three kilos you gain during your break. And then shift back to the patterns that you'll use, the endurance diet habits that you'll use uh, as you, you know, focus on building your fitness uh, for competition again. Yeah, uh, great, great overview. So, so we have periodization both in the more macro scale, like coming back from the off season, but also as you mentioned, uh, easier days versus harder training days. That it's it's not a static thing in nutrition. You don't eat the same every single day. Not not just it's not just scaling, but even what you eat can can change a bit. So uh, we don't need to dive deeper into that. But I think this is a very interesting concept and uh, that's explained well in the book so the listeners can uh, check that out and i think it's uh, something that's often overlooked as well because we want as a society a hard and fast answer to everything and that's why we see these uh, diets come up and uh, and people want to know exactly what uh, macronutrients they should be eating and should not be eating but that that can change or and should change uh, with uh, the time of season and the time in the training microcycle as well Right, exactly. So what about fueling workouts? What's your take on that? Yeah, so, um, you know, a workout is not a race. So when, you know, if you're going to do a race, you want to have a very precise plan. You know, uh, you, you want to do what, what works, you know, what's known to work best because you're fighting for every second, presumably. Um, workouts kind of run the gamut, you know, from just, you know, short, easy recovery sessions to, uh, you know, very hard uh, workouts that are almost as as hard as a race, almost as challenging. Um, so for, you know, longer, harder sessions, the, the ones that start to look a little bit more like races, you know, con- nutrition consumed during those sessions starts to matter because, you know, you're, you're going for uh, performance. So, you know, the big ones are you know, fluid for hydration uh, and carbohydrate. Uh, for uh, a, a, for fuel as an energy, an exogenous energy source. Um, so you know, th- you know, it's best to know exactly you know what the rules are for races, um, and then uh, then you can understand you know what you might want to do uh, in, in workouts. Without you know, you don't have to be as uptight about you know getting everything perfect in in a harder workout, uh, but still you want to you know take advantage of the performance boosting effects of uh, hydrating and uh, fueling during, during workouts. Uh, You know, the wrinkle is that there are some workouts where you might want to intentionally withhold uh, uh, supplemental energy, uh, carbohydrate in particular. Um, It's sort of like altitude training where you, you would, you know, you train at high altitude because it's harder. Uh, You also might want to withhold, uh, uh, Calories during some workouts 
precisely because it's it's an added stress to your body and it respond it may respond to it by um getting a stronger uh fitness boosting stimulus from the session yeah yeah and and that's uh so those what about uh fueling before those fasted workouts is that something that you you would recommend doing like having an overnight fast and then going up in the morning and training and withholding fuel or even potentially having a hard workout in the morning and then a second workout that you train low in the afternoon what well, if we dive deeper into that training low concept yeah that that's the most practical way to do it um and it's you know the way i see it done you know this is a an area where some of the studies uh you know they're interesting and 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 they they're um compelling you know studies where they they look at different you know fasted training protocols but some of them are things you would never want to do in the real world as an athlete you know like um you know hard interval sessions four days in a row it's it's important to understand the difference between a study that is designed in order to highlight differences and then something that you're, you would actually do as part of your routine in the real world as an athlete. So, you know, because, you know, you presumably you sleep at night and you're not eating while you're sleeping, it just makes sense if you want to do, uh, you know, a, a depleted training session to do it first thing in the morning uh, where you're already fasted and you don't have to just go because when you're asleep, you're not hungry um so yeah get get that session done and then go ahead and chow down yeah yeah uh i as a coach i have prescribed those uh training low sessions in the afternoon or evening after a hard workout in the morning with uh, uh low li- little or or no carb refueling in between those sessions and and i've seen very good results for some of my more advanced long distance athletes whether it's ironman or or long cycling races with with that protocol just to because some of the studies seem to indicate as you said that maybe you are a little bit more depleted than after just an overnight fast but you're absolutely right that for practical reasons that uh, first option might be the best and one that's available to to the most athletes and potentially get the most of the bang for the buck so to say uh, it's interesting to know that you've done that though so uh yeah that's good this is it's an interesting area because people are uh, you know, serious-minded people are experimenting and trying things. So I'm I'm like a sponge, you know, trying to. Uh, yeah, I think it. one of the first uh, cases where I tested it was with uh, an athlete. He might be listening to this uh, Nikita, who did uh, uh, a long, long road cycling race. It was 227 kilometers in the Austrian Alps. Actually, ventured into Italy, I think, as well with something like 5,000 plus meters of elevation gain, which would be, I guess, over 15,000 feet. And uh, so a very long day out. And uh, so the finishing time was for him, for this athlete, who was a very good cyclist, was still something like 11 hours uh yeah 11 hours uh, in in that ballpark anyway so so for that long a day uh, of course like maximizing fat burning is is very important and he managed to the the great thing about his performance was that he really stayed strong and uh, didn't drop off in performance even as the day approached 11 hours long so uh, of course it's not all <laughs> attributable to one single protocol that we did but we did that uh, very consistently every week in the last few weeks except taper leading up to to the race for for a couple of months i think almost so 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 i think i think it was good and i, I also do that with some more advanced ironman athletes so uh, yeah i'm interesting to see to get more data from my personal stable of athletes as well on, on how that works yeah very interesting thank you for sharing that then the final thing uh, to talk about in beyond the core habits would be supplements Yes. So, you know, again, I mentioned before that I'm very uh, pragmatic in my orientation to performance nutrition, not ideological. So, you know, there there tend to be two camps on supplements, like either they're all good or they're all bad or, you know, (laughs) thumbs up or thumbs down. But, uh, you know, I believe in evaluating supplements individually just based on, you know, know, their their merits, their proven merits or lack thereof. what I have found is that, um, you know, there, there doesn't seem to be any, um, any sort of must have or must take supplement for endurance athletes, uh, as a performance enhancer. 
sort of like you know the, the way I phrase it sometimes is that uh, what what creatine is to strength sports there's no there doesn't seem to be any real obvious equivalent in endurance sports but the supplements that do tend to be sort of close to necessary or that you see a lot of uh, the elite athletes taking uh, consistently are ones that are more for health than for performance enhancement. Um, and the big three would be uh, omega-3 essential fats, um, which uh, it's right in the name. They are essential to, to human health and it can be difficult to consistently uh, get enough of them, um, especially if you if you don't have a seafood heavy diet. Uh, so that's one. You know that that is one that I take myself every day, even though I do eat a, a lot of seafood. Um, uh, number two, which is is it's not um, universally necessary, but often conditionally so, is iron. Um, a lot of uh, endurance athletes are iron deficient. Um, especially runners and, and triathletes who, who do a lot of running. Um, so it's, it, it's important to sort of track your iron levels uh, on a regular basis or at least consider low iron as a possible culprit if you're you know, suffering from a lot of fatigue that doesn't have another obvious explanation uh, and supplement uh, if, if necessary. Um, I actually discovered to my embarrassment that I was low on iron last year you know, even a sports nutritionist, and um, I, I was low. I started supplementing. Uh, I was, um, I got tested because I was planning to do spend 13 weeks at high altitude. Um, and you know, if I had gone there low, at the altitude camp would have been a disaster for me. Um, and then the other one that I, uh, you know, a lot of athletes need uh, for health, but there's no, there's no, you know, health and fitness obviously overlap. Is vitamin D. Uh, it's a, it's a common deficiency. The symptoms can look a lot like iron deficiency, uh, fatigue being the main one. Uh, so, you know, people, especially in the winter, uh, people with darker skin are, are uh, very commonly, uh, deficient. Um, you know, sometimes just seasonally. So, so it's good to track your, um, vitamin D levels too, and, and also supplement if necessary. Right. Got it. Great overview. So finally, uh, a listener question this one is from andrew and that's uh, it would be get, good to get your view on uh, trendy diets so can you elaborate a bit on that yeah so i mean you know <laughs> you know the title of my book it sounds like a trendy diet right the endurance diet um you know i i sort of came up with that title with with a wink because it's really just a collection of habits it's not something i came up with It's just something that evolved naturally in, in, in the real world. Um, and I think it's just, you know, because it does have built-in flexibility, it's not, it's not really a diet in that sense, too. You know, you can find a Kenyan runner and a Canadian cross-country skier who are both on what I would call the endurance diet. But if you just look at what's on their dinner plates, there's no resemblance. Um, so so I, I just think it's the way to go because – It's the same way this, you know, 80-20 training uh, method evolved, uh, which is it evolved in the real world through trial and error, like generations of, of athletes trying to perform at the highest level, just sort of slowly figured out, not scientifically, but just by, you know, training and competing, training and competing, like which methods tended to work best and which, and which didn't, you know, it's, it's just not accidental. Um, and the same thing on the diet side where, um, You know, it wasn't a scientist that came up with this. Not, you know, it's not, you know, I didn't come up with it for the purpose of this book. It's just something that happened in, in the real world without anyone, you know, uh, you know the, the blind watchmaker analogy. Just no one was in charge. It just sort of happened. But it happened for a reason. It's what tends to work best. Whereas these fad diets, most of them, they weren't even created for endurance athletes. You know, uh, like you know, ketogenic diets were not created for endurance athletes, but because they existed, you know, you have endurance athletes try them. Um, but I just don't think it's it's a sensible starting point. Um, you know, if I had an, an athlete come to me and I knew absolutely nothing about him or her, I wouldn't just automatically put that person on uh, a vegan diet um, or a low carb diet or anything. I would say, well, this is what you know seems to work best consistently in the real world so let's start there yeah yeah and, and uh, uh what you mentioned earlier with uh, 
people that switch to any sort of diet really what they go from an anything goes approach to then actually having uh, a strict set of rules which uh, automatically makes their diet higher quality but in this approach to nutrition to avoid the word diet uh, you do need to have quality so it's not an anything goes approach it's a it's a quality focused approach so uh, yeah i think i think that really does does answer the question or it's of course something that we could talk about for hours and hours and you have another book about that which is called uh is diet cults or yes yes yeah uh yeah. all right perfect so uh that uh wraps it up for for this interview we already did the rapid fire questions last week or last week's interview so uh, thanks again matt it was a real pleasure talking to you likewise thank you So again, I hope that you enjoyed that interview and that the main takeaways for me, I want to reiterate what the core habits are first of all. There are five of them and they are eat everything, eat quality, eat carb-centered, eat enough and eat individually. And if you want to definitely go back and rewind this episode, listen to all of those parts again to learn what really went into each of those core habits. So as, as you can see, it's very flexible. You can have a very different uh, nutritional uh, not approach, but you can have very different things on your plate compared to uh, compared to your next door neighbor who is also a triathlete, and compared to the Japanese triathlete that you are friends with on Facebook. But still, you can both be following these same core principles. Matt used that example of the Canadian cross country skier versus the Can- Kenyan runner, and uh, they will definitely have very different foods that they eat, very different looking plates, but they all follow these strategies. We also, another key takeaway, uh, if I move on to my next point here that I noted down, is that even though the book is called The Endurance Diet, it's not a quote-unquote trendy diet. It's an approach, a flexible system around some cornerstone habits. And uh, and again, it all comes down to the fact that you it doesn't tell you what to put on your plate and what not to put on your plate as long as you follow the cornerstones, cornerstone habit you can still adhere to this same nutritional approach and follow all these core habits. And finally, to answer the question again that we already went into, why would you like to eat as an elite athlete? Well, because we're all human and to eat like an elite means that we're optimizing for health first because you can't perform if you're not healthy. That's a given. Secondary, we're optimizing for performance. And that is, I think, a lot of athletes, I think now, are getting around to health consciousness. Uh, at least around me, I, I see it more and more people are eating actually healthy. But a lot of people do not know how to optimize for performance. And I think that this book will explain it very easily for you, how to optimize your nutrition for performance. And uh, finally, when you have optimized for health and for performance by following these habits, there are those more advanced concepts that we also went into a bit so that you can fine-tune and get those more marginal gains out of your performance. And that includes things like nutrition periodization, train low strategies, etc., And of course, if you want to get a reminder of what we talked about here, you have the show notes on thatstriathlonshow.com and you can leave comments or questions about this episode in the comments section on that show notes page. In the next episode, as I already teased a little bit in last week's episode, I will interview Adil Tveiten, who is the head coach of the Norwegian triathlon team, which uh, has uh, made a real, real, not overnight success, but uh, for, because that doesn't happen in endurance sports. But they have burst onto the scene and uh, they did a podium sweep in April in Bermuda in the WTS World Triathlon Series event. And that has never happened. None of the triathlon superpowers like the United Kingdom, the United States, Spain, any of those, none of them have ever done a podium sweep and then the little country of norway comes and does this almost out of nowhere although christian blumenfeld has been uh, been a very very strong performer in the last few years but uh, it was too many a big surprise including myself but that is a brilliant episode that 
you cannot miss if you're interested in training for performance. And it doesn't matter that it's about how the elites train. I think these concepts that we talked about with Adel, they are very much uh, applicable for age group athletes. That's where Adel got his start. He started coaching age group athletes and uh, then eventually ended up becoming the head coach of uh, the Norwegian national team. So that's next week. Make sure that you don't miss it. And you can do that by subscribing to the podcast. That really helps. It also helps me reach my goal. I have a new podcast goal, and that is to get 50,000 monthly downloads before the end of this year, 2018. So if you subscribe, that definitely helps because then you don't miss episodes as they come out. And uh, another thing that I would really want you to do is to leave a rating and review on iTunes because those really do do help people find the podcast because it goes up in the rankings. Big, big thank you to uh, username arg. I hate this. Hopefully it's not about this podcast. It doesn't seem to be. <laughs> uh, from the United States who writes, excellent resource, five stars. I'm not a triathlete. However, the content of this podcast has been a great benefit to me as an endurance athlete. I'm a competitive rower. The episodes on interval training were excellent, as well as the one on Steven Seiler's training pyramid. I also enjoy the triathlon-focused episodes to the point that I'm considering working on my swimming this winter so I can give it a try. Finally, Michael's preparation and effort to provide a quality podcast experience is apparent in the well-organized discussion and great sound quality. Thank you very much, Arg. I hate this. That really means a lot to me. And uh, anybody who has been a long-time listener but haven't left yet left a rating and review, please, please do so. And another thing that you can do to help is if you can tell just one friend about the podcast, then uh, there are a lot of listeners already. So if everybody tells one friend about the podcast, then that does a lot, lot for the podcast and in terms of helping me reach my goal as well. Big thanks to our sponsors, Stack, that you can find on stackzero.com. Uh, that's where you can go and you should buy their quality bike trainers. If you're looking for a new bike trainer for this winter, then uh, this is where you should look. DC Rainmaker has a great uh, hands-on with uh, the Stack Zero Halcyon that you can check out if you are familiar with DC Rainmaker. He's the gear guru in the triathlon world, a great site. So go and check that out. And he's overwhelmingly positive in that review. Eurobike award the best bike training accessory went to the Stack Zero Halcyon as well so this is this is a top of class bike trainer check it out and for any of their trainer models you can use the promo code TTS20 to get 20% off on stackzero.com and a big thank you to Precision Hydration that you can find on precisionhydration.com take their free online sweat test to get your individualized hydration and electrolyte strategy and if you haven't already ordered from Precision Hydration, you can try them out for free. Get your first box for absolutely nothing with the promo code That's Triathlon Show, all one word, all caps. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.